Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever, and this is episode 209. Before we start, I'd like to give a quick shout out to Evan McKee for liking The Week in Doubt Facebook page. And also, another quick correction, I opened last week's episode about the Satanic Temple by apologizing for my tendency to make flaky mistakes. And ironically, I then went on to get the temple's name wrong about seven times. I had researched the topic all last week, reading articles and watching videos, and yet the most basic thing, the organization's name, I got wrong. It's the Satanic Temple. I kept saying the Temple of Satan. Maybe I should start my own group. Uh, anyone want to join the Temple of Satan? Kidding. Unless I have some takers. (laughs) But anyway... I think I did actually get the name right once or twice at least. My apologies to Lucian Greaves and everyone else who's a part of the organization known as The Satanic Temple. My bad. I actually had a back and forth with uh, Lucian via Twitter. There may be an interview in the works. If I wasn't a skeptic, I'd say fingers crossed. For some reason, these interview opportunities rarely seem to come to fruition. Okay, so on with the show. So it's October now. I love the fall. I love Halloween. Well, actually, I love the build-up to Halloween. The actual night is usually hit or miss. Kids ceaselessly knocking on your door or parties with grown-ass people wearing costumes. But usually there's at least some sexy witches or supergirls or something. But anyway, I'm digressing. My point is I dig Halloween and every year I like to release a documentary or two in keeping with the spirit of the season. In fact, this episode was almost going to be a documentary on the Salem witch trials, but I decided to do the news story thing instead. Maybe next week will be that doc and then I might do one on the exorcist too. But this first story is definitely in keeping with the whole Halloween theme. It seems Ken Ham, everyone's favorite creationist, sarcasm intended, is up to his old tricks again. This time he wants people to hand out phony cash with threats of eternal damnation printed on it to unsuspecting kids on Halloween. I hope they at least tape a starburst or something to the back of it. Imagine if that's all you get. If you hand those things out instead of candy and get egged, you have no one to blame but yourself. But I'll read a little bit from, you guessed it, a HuffPost article. And it's entitled, Creationist Group Wants You to Tell Trick-or-Treaters They're Going to Hell. And it's, uh, the subtitle is, How to Have the Absolute Worst House on Halloween. It's by Ed Mazza. Let's see, and there's a photo of one of these fake bills with a caption. These fake $1 million bills warn of all the different things that could send you to hell, and one evangelical group wants you to give them out to trick-or-treaters on Halloween. Anti-Halloween creationists have some ideas about the holiday that could turn your home into the least popular trick-or-treat stop in the neighborhood. Instead of handing out candy, Answers in Genesis wants you to give trick-or-treaters fake $1 million bills that warn children of the fiery hell that awaits them. Have you ever lied, stolen, or used God's name in vain? Reads part of a fake bill with Noah's Ark on the front. The penalty for your crimes against God is death and eternal hell. 
I know my audio only listeners obviously won't be able to see this, but speaking of stealing, they seem to have shamelessly stolen the Jurassic Park typeface. Now, I'm no saint when it comes to utilizing copyrighted material. I sometimes use some of my favorite songs as bumper music, etc., but at least I'm not threatening anyone with eternal perdition. Who knows, maybe they paid for the font, but anyway. And look at that big T-Rex. Let me on the ark, fellas. I promise I won't eat anybody. Or does Ken Ham think the dinosaurs died in the flood? I can't keep his BS straight. I thought there were images circulating online before of, like, animatronic dinosaurs nestled aboard the ark or something like that. But in order to try to maintain his young earth creationist theory that humans and dinosaurs live side by side... Doesn't he try to suggest that just because certain dinosaurs had sharp teeth doesn't mean they were carnivorous? And he points to the panda as an example, saying, uh, like we're the stupid ones, the panda bear has sharp teeth and he eats bamboo, ignoring the obvious fact that pandas belong to a family of animals that are carnivorous, well, technically omnivorous, and do use their teeth to uh, tear a red flesh. The panda is an exception that adapted to its environment in a way where it can subsist primarily off of bamboo. But they're still in the family, is it uh, Ursidae or Ursidae, with other bear species. And uh, I believe bears and raccoons are closely related, relatively speaking. But enough with the uh, amateur taxonomy lesson, back to this Ken Ham creationist BS. Have you ever lied, stolen, hated, or dishonored your parents? Isn't the, the penalty in the Old Testament for dishonoring your parents' death? Have you looked with lust? Yes, I have. God says that's the same as committing adultery in your heart. A message on the bill reads as it describes the Ten Commandments. And if you've broken any of these rules, you're doomed. The penalty of sin is death and eternity in hell. Don't try to hide either because, and that's the author speaking, but here's another quote. God knows your every thought, word, and deed, and your conscience confirms that you're guilty. Along with selling packs of the hell money, Answers in Genesis is also hawking a Halloween Learn and Share kit, which contains both sets of bills, a DVD with an anti-Halloween lecture, and an anti-Halloween book that appears to be a printed version of an essay from the Evangelical Christian Organization's website. According to the essay, Halloween has quote-unquote evil intent, considerable paganism, well, that, that part's true, and the glorification of sensuality, that sounds cool, death and demons. It's like everything I like, paganism, sensuality, demons. The group urges churches to host social functions on October 31st to prevent kids from celebrating. If a Christian alternative is not possible in your location, then take advantage of this opportunity to share with people the message of the gospel and how Jesus Christ has conquered death and the forgiveness that can only be found in God when you greet trick-or-treaters, the essay reads. Jesus Christ conquered death. Oh boy. Do I want to go off on a long-winded digression? Uh, as powerful as I sometimes find the story of the death and resurrection— the surrounding theology, in my humble opinion, is very convoluted. God made everything, man, woman, the tree of knowledge, even the talking snake, makes mankind imperfect and susceptible to temptation, and then when they act upon that temptation, i.e. eating the wrong kind of fruit, uh-oh, playtime's over, expelled from the garden, cursed with death. Original sin, another concept were it true that would go into the Yahweh's a dick column. 
two people ate the wrong kind of produce, and now the rest of us have to be steeped in misery and held accountable. Uh, maybe the Gnostics were onto something, at least regarding their view of the God of the Old Testament. As I've said on the show before, to me it definitely smacks of mythology. Often the old myths were man's attempt to explain natural phenomena. It almost seems to me like the story of the fall in the garden is man's attempt to explain suffering and death. Of course, there's even some Christians who think that many of the Old Testament stories are just parables, including the story of the garden. Rightly so, given what we know about evolution. But if the fall uh, in the garden was just a story and Eve never plucked that apple, well, technically, I think it would have been a fig or a pomegranate, then what the hell did Jesus die for? But of course, different denominations have differing views on original or ancestral sin, and there are different theological ideas about why Jesus had to die on the cross. But that seems to be the basic Christian narrative, and this original sin stuff goes at least as far back as uh, the second century with Irenaeus, I think. Add the concept of the Trinity to the mix and things really get convoluted. Jesus is his own father, so you've got God sacrificing himself as a ransom to the devil, death itself in some cases, or even to himself as God the Father, to free humanity from the debt of original sin. It reminds me of one of those infomercials, there's got to be a better way. Uh, now, I'm a great admirer of Christopher Hitchens. Uh, that's a weird saying. Makes it sound like I'm saying I'm great. But anyway, um, I remember how he was always denouncing the concept of vicarious redemption, the idea that someone else could absolve you of your sin or wrongdoing. And I think his argument does make a kind of ethical sense but that being said, even as an atheist, I still find myself often moved by the crucifixion narrative, the idea of someone on a divine mission sacrificing themselves out of love to redeem the world. It's a powerful idea, but I don't think Hitch was against self-sacrifice, a buddy jumping on a grenade, that kind of thing. He was against the idea that someone can absolve you of your transgressions. And I think this is because Hitch, despite what his detractors might think, was actually a deeply moral person. And I think many of the objections he had against religion were on moral grounds. But the whole thing regarding why Christ had to die on the cross, to my skeptical brain, seems like a case of people working backwards after the fact. And this is assuming that the mythicists are wrong, and there actually was a historical Jesus. I'm on the fence. But you can almost imagine the followers of Jesus, crestfallen, panicking, our leader's dead, now what? You know, trying to make sense of it or ascribe a meaning to it after the fact. And then on top of that, you have early church fathers and theologians adding their two cents. Not saying that's what happened, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. Anyway, let's do another news story. Okay, I got this one from my friend Crocoduck. And it's a story out of Canada about a quote-unquote atheist minister. And the article I'm reading is from The Star, and it's apparently by Amy Dempsey and Jim Rankin. So it's entitled, Sad Day for United Church, says atheist minister Greta Vosper. Church committee recommends defrocking popular minister at West Hill United Church in Scarborough. 
Greta Vosper, the popular and controversial United Church of Canada minister who calls herself an atheist, should no longer be a minister, a review committee has recommended. In our opinion, she is not suitable to continue in ordained ministry because she does not believe in God, Jesus Christ, or the Holy Spirit. The Church's Toronto Conference Review Committee concluded in a 39-page report released Wednesday. We have concluded that if Greta Vosper were before us today seeking to be ordained, said the report, the committee would not recommend her. After prayer and much discussion, the 23-person committee voted 19-4 to 4 in favor of a motion that found Vosper unsuitable to continue serving. Vosper, 57, a minister at West Hill United Church in Scarborough for nearly two decades, does not believe in an interventionist supernatural God. She preaches instead about love, kindness, and human connection. And here's a quote. My sadness is for the many clergy and members and individuals currently studying for leadership in the UCC, who are now also being told they need to keep quiet about their true beliefs or risk censure. Vosper told the star in an email. And I'll skip down a little bit just so I don't send you all off to sleep. This is a pretty long article. It briefly talks about how Vosper and her followers will have a chance to respond. Then it continues, if the committee was to find that Vosper should be put on the quote-unquote discontinued service list, the most severe outcome she could face, there would have to be a further hearing at the national level of the church. Vosper has been an outspoken voice in a slow but growing movement within the United Church toward downplaying Jesus and the Bible and adopting a more metaphorical interpretation of religious symbols and a greater emphasis on humanist, environmental, and social justice causes. And note to self, you know you've been watching too much YouTube when you can't even hear the phrase social justice without thinking of blue hair or Trigglypuff or something. But anyway, where was I? Downplaying Jesus in the Bible and adopting a more metaphorical interpretation of religious symbols and a greater emphasis on humanist, environmental, and social justice causes. Some argue it will reinvent a struggling church with declining attendance. Others believe it will destroy it. The minority who dissented to the interview committee's motion finding Vosper unsuitable wrote that many of her theological positions, while not in the mainstream, are not unique amongst the ministers and laypersons of the United Church. Until recently, Vosper's unorthodox approach was welcomed by the United Church of Canada, a historically inclusive and open-minded Protestant denomination founded in 1925, when Presbyterians, Methodists, and Congregationalists formed a union. It is a church that has always avoided setting boundaries on the scope of acceptable beliefs. Vosper, whose Twitter bio boasts, irritating the church into the 21st century, has pushed the limits of that openness. In challenging Vosper's suitability for ministry, the church took the unprecedented step of asking itself whether there is a line. The majority of the 23-member review decided she has crossed it. In the past, top elected church leaders known as moderators have enthusiastically come to Vosper's defense, whether they agree with her or not. No one questioned her in 2008 when she published her first book, With or Without God, Why the Way We Live is More Important Than What We Believe. Uh, actually, those are words to live by. Why the way we live is more important than what we believe. Or a few years later, when she published her second, Amen, What Prayer Can Mean in a World Beyond Belief. The tipping point came three years ago when Vosper adopted a new label, Atheist, 
The West Hill congregation has stood behind her through it all. Others have balked, calling her a heretic, an abomination, that's pretty strong, a provocateur, and demanded to know why an atheist is allowed to preach from a Christian pulpit. Things escalated in January 2015 when she wrote an open letter to then-moderator Reverend Gary Paterson, not Peterson, Paterson, all these people have, like, if you were writing a story uh, like uh, about some drama about a church, like this dude has Pater in his name, Vosper, kind of sounds like Vesper. But anyway, uh, in a response to a prayer published on the United Church of Canada website for those killed in the Charlie Hebdo attacks, arguing the use of religious language reinforced the belief that motivated the killings, the existence of a supernatural god. Yeah, that definitely takes balls, being a minister and chastising someone for promoting belief in God. In May 2015, Toronto Conference announced... Toronto Conference, whatever. Toronto Conference announced that it planned to review Vosper's fitness to be a minister and asked Nora Sanders, General Secretary of the United Church, to create a procedure for doing so. A United Church minister can only be reviewed for alleged ineffectiveness or insubordination. The Sanders decision tied Vosper's effectiveness to her quote-unquote suitability. A minister who is not suitable, Sanders ruled, cannot be effective. To assess suitability, Sanders wrote, a review committee may ask the minister to answer the ordination questions again, starting with, do you believe in God? Vosper filed an appeal seeking to halt the review, arguing it would redefine the nature of ministry in the United Church and reduce the diversity of beliefs that could be expressed within the denomination. In March, the church announced that the review would proceed. Okay, so I had some notes I was kind of following for most of the episode, but I'm just going to cast those aside and just try to express myself the best I can on the fly uh, regarding this topic. Now, I really am torn on this whole figure of belief thing. I mean, I'm definitely in this woman's corner, uh, Minister Vosper. I like that she's trying to do good in the world. Uh, I, and from inside the church, from behind the pulpit, is trying to promote not only humanist values, but reason to the point where she's actually chastising other clergy members for promoting belief in the supernatural. In, not just in the supernatural in general, but in a supernatural creator or God. So I hope she gets to keep her position. I'm definitely in her corner. I like the cut of her jib, as they say. But I really am torn when it comes to people who interpret religion figuratively, but still stay active within a religious organization. And in a, and in a sense, I know that figurative interpretation is nothing new. I mean, you can go back to St. Augustine uh, taking a figure of interpretation of how many days creation took, uh, etc. Or even the gospel writers themselves. They seemed more concerned with spreading the quote-unquote good news, the gospel, than they did with being um, journalistically accurate. You know, a concept which probably didn't exist in the sense it does today back then. They didn't seem to be bothered by the fact that they were clearly using parables and changing up narratives so, you know, the life of Christ mirrored the life of certain Old Testament patriarchs. Um, so I think most likely the gospel writers did believe in the resurrection or what, or what the hell were they doing, you know? But 
I don't, like I said, I don't think they were concerned with journalistic accuracy. And I think that's a pretty mainstream consensus, unless you're a, a William Lane Craig or something. And even as I've talked about a lot on this show, you know, we have uh, the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then we have John. And in John, Jesus dies on a different day. So Jesus can be symbolically depicted as, you know, the lamb who dies for the sins of the world. He's kind of, you know, he's being slaughtered as the lambs, as the paschal lambs are being slaughtered. So the gospel writers didn't seem to have a problem with figurative interpretation. But I'm sure there was something, you know, belief in the resurrection or something that they still hung their hats on or whatever. But generally speaking, I think most people, or, or people who characterize themselves as believers at least, even if they're kind of cafeteria Catholics, they still have to hang their hat on something, so they still believe in the resurrection. There's many people, you know, fundamentalists, maybe even people who aren't fundamentalists, who still believe in the Old Testament miracles, etc. Um, but to me, if you're someone who thinks it's all figurative, you might think that the Bible contains some degree of history, but you don't believe in the miracles. You don't believe in the resurrection. In the case of Vosper, she doesn't even believe in a supernatural creator. In a way, I mean, I get it in a way because I'm attracted to a lot of aspects of religion too. Even though I'm an atheist and a skeptic, I also like to think I'm someone who's kind of of a poetic and, for lack of a better word, quote-unquote, spiritual bent, too. I understand the seductive draw of ritual, of feeling like you're part of something. Uh, so I do get all that. And as I've said ad infinitum on the show, there's things that are at least tangentially related to religion that I really love, like sacred music, um, religious art, uh, things like that. Even um, some of the stuff in the Bible purely as literature or as parable. Um, but I, I feel like if you're if you re truly are an atheist, I just I don't really get it. Like I said, you know, I, I want her to keep her position and I wish there were more ministers and clergy people like her. But just just logically, psychologically, I, I don't really get what the point even really is. I mean, I get maybe it's comfy and cozy to be part of something and feel like you belong. And and I was thinking something to, to this effect when I was doing the episode last week on the Satanic Temple as well. Um, you know, there's a lot of things, this is going, probably not going to paint me in the best light, you know, but there's a lot of things about Satanism that kind of appeal to me. Um, just the theatricality of it. I, I like the dark sensibility, the, uh, the costumes, the ritual, uh, the incantations, um, the s sexy girls all dressed in black, uh, <laughs> you know, the associations with rebellion and defiance. Uh, I like the, the Baphomet statue and, and all that stuff. Um, I'm someone who's attracted to, you know, dark heavy metal music and the writings of H.P. Lovecraft. And, uh, and I like looking at macabre medieval art depicting skeletons and demons and stuff. Uh, I find demonology fascinating. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of cool things, say, about non-theistic Satanism. And I know, at least with uh, Levain Satanism, they probably had some pretty 
damn cool parties, too. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know how much the uh, Satanic Temple likes to, to party down. Maybe I'll find out someday. But, you know, I'm thinking about, okay, so I'm thinking about the Satanic Temple. I'm like, you don't take any of it literally. Um, I get that there's a lot of kind of stuff that resonates with you there. Uh, Satan as a symbol of defiance and rebellion. And maybe just, like I said, like the, the cool kind of gothic theatricality of it all. I'm very drawn to that stuff too. But both say with, with the idea of an atheist minister or even with non-theistic Satanism, I'm like, well, what the hell are people hanging their hats on? I'm not saying you need a supernatural belief to hang your hat on. I'm a, <laughs> damn, I'm an atheist. You know what I mean? But I'm kind of, I guess in a way I'm kind of a lone wolf atheist where I'm not really a joiner in the first place. And I'm like, even if I find an organization tempting, like I've, I've fantasized about becoming a damn Yazidi or maybe a Gnostic Christian, if there's still any kicking around. There's these, or even I've thought about becoming a non-theistic Satanist before. There's these groups, these organizations that I feel a pull towards and that I do like the symbolism. I, I like some of the ideals and the principles, but then I'm like, then I imagine myself, okay, I'm in the organization. Now what? You know, I still, I don't believe in a God. I don't believe in the supernatural. Um, as cool and as moving as I find ritual I think there's probably a lot of ritual in, in my own life, in, in, in my own weird poetic way, the weird way I view the wor world, the sense of awe I, I get from watching leaves or branches stir in the wind or watching the sunrise. It almost feels like a ritual to me or the feeling that comes over me when I get or when I'm struck with artistic inspiration. But I feel like if I'm inside a structured organization, I'm a non-believer, they're non-believers or whatever. I mean, what's, I mean, what is, what is, is it a social club? Uh, and then there, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm so satanic. I'm even too satanic for the Satanists <laughs> because I'm speaking figuratively because I'm so defiant that I picture myself, even if I, if I was a non-theistic Satanist, I'm like, and they start doing rituals and you have to conform to the rituals. I'm like, I don't even want to conform to the rituals. I'm against all of it. I don't want anything that smacks of group think or religious structure, you know, you know, we're not believing in anything literally. So aren't these rituals all kind of empty in a sense? And why do I want to just go through the motions and pay lip service or, or genuflect or pantomime with a bunch of other people when I brass tacks, I don't believe. Hopefully if the Satanic Temple is listening again, I haven't offended you guys, uh, not my intent. And I understand that maybe there's some psychological or symbolic power to ritual. And I think that you guys really do great work when it comes to your separation of church and state activism. And you definitely seem like the type of guys and ga gals, have I ever said gals in my life, that I'd like to hang out with, you know, really cool people. Yeah, partying with non-theistic or, or even theistic Satanists, uh, definitely on my bucket list. But with the latter, I might have to worry about whether or not my intestines will still be intact at the end of the night. Is that bigoted? Is that a stereotype? Yeah, but once again, no offense intended. I was just kind of venting when it comes to, you know, my my mixed feelings on figure of belief. 
But of course, we could probably all agree that at least figure of believers are probably a lot easier to reason with than literal believers. But with that being said, uh, I think I'll call this episode a wrap. You guys know the drill. Uh, please follow the show on Twitter. Please like the Facebook page. If you're a YouTube viewer, please like, comment, and subscribe. I'm trying to, uh, you know, grow the show here, as I've been saying the last couple of weeks. If you want to help the show monetarily, you can do so by using the PayPal widget at the bottom of the Podbean page. There's all that alliteration. Or you can go to patreon.com slash doubt and support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. And a very big thank you to all you guys who do support me monthly through Patreon. You're basically helping to cover the cost of the show. As I've explained before, you know, here's a tip uh, or a little inside info for you aspiring uh, podcasters out there. You don't just upload your stuff directly to iTunes. You need a middleman where you can host your feed. And that's why I use Podbean. And like an idiot, I kept upgrading to more and more expensive packages when I thought I was running out of uh, storage space. So it cost me about 19 something a month to host the feed on Podbean. And I make just about that much, about 20-something dollars from you guys every month. So I appreciate that very much. Um, you know, that's one less bill I have to pay every month. Um, and I really appreciate that. Any more that I make beyond that, I'm going to try to sink back into the show as well. Maybe, you know, spend it on better equipment or whatever. And then if I can really start pulling in the bucks, uh, I'd like to do this as my day job eventually. Uh, I can dream. <laughs> that, that would truly be awesome. But as always, thanks for listening, guys. And until next week. <laughs> <laughs>